This is a recording from the More Than the Score lecture series at the University of Virginia, made possible by the Office of Engagement's Alumni Education Program. Do people know what makes them happy? How good are we at predicting what will make us happy, or how long will our happiness last? What is happiness anyway? On October 23, 2010, Professor Timothy D. Wilson discussed research that addresses these questions. He's introduced by Althea Brooks. It's my pleasure to introduce Timothy Wilson. He's a Sherelle uh, J. Aston Professor of Psychology at the University of Virginia. Professor Wilson has taught the university since 1979. He served as chair of the Department of Psychology from 2001 to 2004. Professor Wilson has received many distinguished awards, including the UVA Outstanding Teacher Award in 2001, the UVA Distinguished Scientist Award in 2010. He was also elected to the American Academy of Arts and Sciences in 2009. Many of you have probably attended and sat through his introductory to social psychology class, that's Psych 2600. How many of you sat through that class, attended that class? Few of you. Um, that class fills out very quickly to the maximum of 350 students each fall. His research concerns the nature of self-knowledge and its limits, including people's knowledge of what makes them happy. In 2002, he published Strangers to Ourselves, which, was, which the author, Malcolm Gladwell, who most of you probably know have read his books, he described that, that um, uh, book as probably the most influential book he has ever read. Professor Wilson has a new book that will, will be released in about a year, um, the Inside Story, what it's currently being called. Please help me welcome the very distinguished professor, Timothy Wilson, to the More Than a Score audience. Thank you, Althea. Well, thank you very much for sharing your Saturday morning, a chilly but beautiful Saturday morning with me, and, uh, and thank you for that very kind introduction. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here and to get to tell you a little bit about research in psychology and what it has to say about uh, happiness and um, whether we can become happier, basically. So let me jump right in. And I thought I would begin with a question for you, which namely is, imagine you came across that mythical genie which could grant you a wish. And the question is, what would you wish for? Now, it's interesting, virtually all cultures have a myth about genies that can grant wishes. In the Arabian Nights, of course, it's Aladdin and his magical lamp. In Ireland, there's a leprechaun you can come across, if you're lucky, who will grant you wishes or whatever you would like. In China, there's a dragon that, that can grant wishes. You know, virtually all cultures have this. And the question is, what would you wish for? Well, the internet's an amazing thing, and it turns out we can find out what other people wish for. Uh, there are websites in which people list their, their favorites uh, or what they would wish for if they found Aladdin's lamp. So I cut and pasted a few of those here so you can see. Someone wished that they would be able to fly. I thought that was kind of an interesting one. Um, to have flawless skin. <laughs> um, to be able to always win an argument. <laughs> kind of wonder what's up with that person. but, but um, for my own Food Network television show, Caribbean Spice, sounds good. Um, to be the fastest runner in the world, maybe from a soul poke, I don't know. And um, to own Disneyland <laughs> was one. 
Well, one suspects these are kind of tongue-in-cheek, and there are also ones that people list that I think are more serious and maybe are more along the lines of what you might wish for. So this person, for example, said, for the health of my loved ones, uh, to be able to save at least one person who can't save themselves, to be wealthy. Remember that leprechaun was in a, a kettle full of gold. And to be with loved ones. And the question I would pose is, are these the right things to wish for? And if you think about it, uh, having a lamp to grant us wishes doesn't guarantee that we will become happy because we have to know what to wish for. And what if we wish for the wrong thing that doesn't actually make us happy? Uh, and that's really the short message of today's talk, one of them anyway, is that we're not always perfect predictors at knowing what will make us happy. Of course, we're not terrible at this, and most of us in this room may be quite good at it. But psychological research suggests that there may be some um, little mistakes that we make along the way. Uh, along the way, I will also tell you what I think the recipe is for a happy life, at least according to psychological research, and we'll talk about how well people know this recipe. But first, um, I think it's worth starting with a few, uh, a few moments anyway of discussion of what psychologists think is the definition of happiness and how to measure it, some of these kinds of nut and bolts, nuts and bolts questions. And I'm not going to say a lot about this because I think there's, you know, there's lots of research on this. But basically, um, happiness is thought to have these three ingredients. One is a more cognitive judgment of how well our life is going, just called life satisfaction. The others are more emotional or what we like to call affective components, um, how frequently people experience positive affect and how frequently they experience negative affect. Well, uh, how do you measure that? Again, a question we could spend all morning on, but I'll just say it briefly that, you know, basically there's lots of different ways. We have biological uh, ways of measuring what our brains are doing. We have uh, one way is to ask your friends and loved ones how happy you are. But by far the most common and the most simple and straightforward way is to ask you how happy you are. This is relying on self-reports. Um, and it turns out that this is a pretty good measure, pretty reliable. It tends to correlate with those other ones on the list. This is done in a variety of ways, simply giving people scales in which you ask the most straightforward question of how happy are you these days or something along those lines. There are also studies, I'll mention a couple of these, where you give people uh, handheld computers or, or iPhones and you just beep them at random points of their day and ask, how are you feeling right now? How much positive feelings do you have? And, and so on, as another way to get at sort of online or everyday kinds of happiness. So another question that often comes up is, does it matter how happy we are? And is this something that we should all be striving for? Well, I would certainly agree with those who say that it's not the only thing in life that we should we should aspire for. There are lots of things in life that are important. Uh, for example, should we be just self-obsessed, uh, thinking about our own well-being when there's lots of people out there who need help and assistance? As we'll see later on, these two aren't actually independent. Uh, I think that um, it's a little bit of an artificial uh, matter to say it's one or the other, because indeed how happy we are can depend on 
how much outreach we are doing, but we'll come to that in a moment. But I would point out that research-wise, if you ask people in virtually all cultures in the world to rank values as to what is important to them to aspire to in life, that happiness is near the top of the list in virtually all cultures. And it also predicts things that we care about. So happy people uh, tend to have more satisfying marriages, to be more successful in their jobs, to be healthier. And there is at least some evidence that happy people live longer as well. Now to show you one study that illustrated this, I have here some baseball card photos of a couple of guys who happened to be playing in the major leagues in the year 1952. Why that year, I'll tell you in a moment. But you can see here that uh, there's a guy, Dick Garnett. He played for the Houston Colts, as they were called at the time. Uh, he was born in 1928 and is still alive. He's 82 and counting. This is a guy named Bill White, played for the Baltimore Orioles. He uh, was born in 1922 and passed away in 2007 at the age of 85. So look at these guys for a moment. Now look at these fellows. Uh, there's Earl Torgerson. He played for the Chicago White Sox, was born in 1924, uh, passed away at age 66. Dave Coslow, um, unfortunately, passed away at, a, at the young age of, of 55. Now, do you see a difference between these guys and these guys? Well, uh, this is, I kind of cherry pick these pictures, of course, but, um, but there was a study uh, that was done by some researchers in which they did this more systematically. They looked at the photographs of every Major League Baseball player who was in the Major Leagues in the year 1952, and they measured whether they were smiling. Now, they tried to limit it to people who were smiling in what's called a Duchenne smile, which is kind of a very genuine, it's not a fake smile, it's a very genuine one where your uh, brow is crinkled and your lips are, are turned up. Um, and if people were showing this genuine smile, suggesting that at least at the time the photograph was snapped, that they were feeling happy, they actually did live longer. And this was controlling for a host of other variables that the researchers were able to measure, such as whether they were married, their educational level, and, and so on. This is one study, of course, but there are others. There was a study of nuns that, that looked at, um, at age 18, they had to write an essay uh, saying why they wanted to become a nun, and they tracked these, these nuns for decades afterwards, and they, they coded their entrance essays as to how much happiness seemed to be expressed in it, and that too predicted how long the nuns um, lived. So some suggestion that, that how happy we are matters to our, our longevity. Okay, so now I guess the $10,000 question, what makes us happy? Uh, well, it's probably not a surprise that we inherited some of this from our parents, that there is evidence from twin studies to suggest that, that um, uh, there's a bit of a genetic component to, to how sort of dispositionally happy we are. It's not that strong, but, the, but there is some, some there. Now, it's also true, of course, that our happiness depends on things that are out of our control. There's lots of research on happiness in different cultures and uh, cultures that are marked by a lot of political upheaval and poverty. Um, people there, not surprisingly, are not terribly happy. Zimbabwe, for example, has some of the lowest happiness ratings in the world. Um, 
In fact, it's interesting, my colleague at, in the psychology department, Shige Oishi, has done an interesting study of how the definition of happiness has changed over the uh, several hundred years. And until fairly recently, the definition of happiness was good fortune or luck in life, things that happen to us, uh, things that we can't necessarily control. And in fact, I suspect this is why so many cultures have myths about genies and things that can grant us wishes, because if we can't control it, we need a genie to bestow upon us the things that, that make us happy. But beginning you know, 100 years ago or so, uh, the definition of happiness began to change to things we can control, this subjective state that is partly under our uh, control. And I think, you know, to be frank, I think this is partly the privilege of living in an affluent society, one that, that bestows upon us good external things, uh, for most of us anyway, uh, the ability to live outside of poverty and, and to have some leisure time, some control over our lives that perhaps wasn't true for, for many of us over our, our human history. But what this means is that it gives us the chance to be happier. If there are things under our control that we can uh, change, then the, the good news is then perhaps we can alter our happiness, even though some of it is, is not in our, under our control. So what are those things? Here is my four ingredient recipe. And um, I don't think any of these will be terribly surprising, uh, but by far, the number one predictor of happiness, any happiness researcher will tell you, is the quality and frequency of our social relationships. That happy people are those who connect with other people. And I'm going to say a little bit more about each of these. But I'll, I'll give you my list. Second, find meaning in your life. Find some way of explaining human existence and your place in it. Third, have hope. Be an optimist. And fourth, have a sense of purpose. Have something you can engage in that has an, a goal and that you feel you're making progress toward that goal. Okay, let's go through uh, each of those. Uh, but first, um, again, I think this is fairly obvious, or at least not surprising, what these ingredients are. But what maybe is a little more surprising is uh, that we sometimes, at least some people, lose sight of them and uh, look for things other than those. And in fact, um, if you think of what's not on that list, one of them uh, is wealth and money. And again, I'll come back to that as well. But I have it advising in parentheses there to remind me to give this as an example that at the University of Virginia in the College of Arts and Sciences, next week is advising week. It's the week in which students uh, come to choose their courses for the following semester. And we have meetings with all of our advisees. I happen to have about 25 of them in the psychology department. We're a very popular major. And, um, and you know, I really look forward to these meetings in a lot of ways because it's a chance to really sort of see what these kids are, are thinking about their, um, not only their courses, but their career choices and, and so on. And I often find myself in conversations where um, I say, you know, what, what, what's, what's for you beyond UVA? And, you know, some of them are quite wise. Um, others seem to be focused on wealth and money, where they say, you know, I want to, um, you know, they, they're not very articulate about why they're choosing a particular career other than they can earn a lot of money. And that often sparks conversations along these lines. Well, um, one thing I like to say to them is imagine it's a Tuesday morning and you're waking up 
and you have to go to work that day, will you be looking forward to what you're doing? Huh, you know, they haven't really thought about it in those ways, but I'll make a lot of money. Well, um, there may be other things to, to think about. So let's go through those recipe ingredients, and, and uh, I'll tell you a little bit about some research that supports them or suggests they're true. Um, again, this, connecting with other people I do think is bi-directional. I think it's true that being with others makes us happy, but it's also true that um, happy people are more likely to have satisfying relationships um, to start with. But um, here's some, an example of one study that suggests that being with others makes us happy. A very simple study, the researchers gave people handheld computers. These were college students in this particular study. And they just beeped them at random times during the day. And they had to say, to what extent am I having positive feelings right now? It was on a six-point scale with the higher numbers, more positive feelings. Now, they divided their sample into those who were extroverts and introverts based on a personality questionnaire they had given people, thinking that that might make some difference. They also asked people when they were beeped what they were doing at that time. And one question they asked is simply, are you alone or are you with somebody else? And what you see here is that, first of all, this is consistent with other research, that extroverts tend to be a little happier than introverts on average. But interestingly, for both groups, the green bars are how happy or how positive feelings people had when they were by themselves, the orange bars when they were with other people, and even the introverts were happier when they were with other people. And this is, again, just one example of, of many studies that suggest that other people, you know, we're a very social species, and other people are a source of, of happiness. Now, again, um, Maybe that's self-evident, but what's curious about this is that we as Americans are spending less and less time with each other. So a few uh, statistics that over the past 50 years, we're less likely to attend religious services, join civic groups, socialize. Um, and this comes from a very interesting book by the sociologist Robert Putnam called Bowling Alone, in which he charts the amount of time we spend with each other over the past several decades. The title comes from the fact that if you went to a bowling alley um, in 1960, you would see many people socializing and taking part in bowling leagues. Now if you go to bowling alleys, it's not unusual to see people bowling by themselves, that we seem to have be spending less time with each other. And there's many reasons for that, um, but I think it comes at, at some cost. Another example is as, as those of us who become affluent enough to buy big houses in the suburbs, I think there's a tendency for some of us at least to buy these big houses far apart from, from our neighbors. And that has advantages, but one disadvantage is it connects us less to, to our neighbors and, and to other people. Okay, we could spend all day in each one of these, but I'm gonna go through each one fairly quickly. Uh, the second ingredient of happiness is to find meaning in our life, and by that I mean to have some understanding of the world and our place in it. Now how, you know, what do I mean, what kind of meaning? Well, the most obvious one, perhaps, are religious beliefs. And there's a big complicated literature on whether religious people are happier than others. My current reading of it is that there is um, some tendency for people who genuinely believe in their religious doctrine uh, to be a little happier, but particularly if that doctrine is a positive one that thinks about a hereafter. Uh, people who believe in the devil and and think they're constantly escaping hell tend not to be happier than others, it turns out. 
But if it's a kind of a nice uh, positive view, then uh, people are a little happier. But uh, it doesn't have to be religious beliefs that allows us to have a sense of, of meaning about, about the world. Uh, we can find meaning in other ways. So back to the baseball theme, this is Annie Savoy from the movie Bull Durham, who said that she believed in the church of baseball. It's a cartoon from Sam Gross where this guy makes it to the mountaintop to ask the guru about the meaning of life, and it turns out the meaning of life is cats. Well, if that's true for you, then, you know, uh, whatever gets you through the night, as John Lennon said, you know, to have this coherent belief system is what's important, I think. Certainly better to find a guru who says the meaning of life is cats than to scale that mountain and get to the top and see this guy wearing a t-shirt that says, t-shirt, says life is a bitch and then you die. That's not a good uh, understanding of, of life and our place in it. Now, one thing it turns out, another piece of good news, is we human beings are really good at this. We have these big brains and are able to find meaning even perhaps better than we think we can. And to illustrate this, I want to tell you about a study I've always liked that looked at uh, what the psychological effects are of genetic testing for various kinds of diseases. So in this particular study, the sample was a group of people, all of whom had had a parent who had died of Huntington's disease. Now, as many of you know, Huntington's disease is a genetic disorder that uh, if you have a parent who had it, you have a 50% 50, 50 chance of having inherited the gene yourself, which means you will get the disease. And unfortunately, it's not curable, so you will die at, uh, in middle age. And one of the insidious things about this disease is the symptoms don't appear until um, adulthood. So you can have many years of not knowing if you have the disease or not. It's the one Woody Guthrie uh, died of. Well, um, a few decades ago, they developed a genetic test where you can find out whether you are going to die of Huntington's disease. And in this study, they took a sample of people who, again, had a 50% chance of, uh, of having inherited the gene, and they gave them the genetic test. Well, nature assigned people to these three conditions. There were those who got the good news. You do not have the gene. There were those who got the bad news. Unfortunately, you do. And then there was this third group that either chose not to take the test or did take it, and for a small percentage of people, the test is inconclusive, so you still don't know whether you have it or not. And the question is, how happy were these people? So in this study, uh, they, have a, they had lots of measures in, the, in this study. I'll show you a general well-being scale where the higher you are, just basically the happier you are. And they measured people before they took the test at a baseline period. Then they took the test, and they measured them about a week later, six months later, and 12 months later. Now, here's the people who got the good news. So they don't have the gene. And not surprisingly, oops, I'm getting ahead of myself, they, um, they have, show a pretty big increase in happiness. But interestingly, by a year later, they're pretty much back to where they started from. But now let's look at the people who got the bad news. Not surprisingly, they were pretty devastated. But look at this. Over about a year, they creep up so that they're indistinguishable in happiness from the uh, group that knows they are likely to live a long and healthy life, even knowing that um, the group that got the bad news that they're going to die at a younger age, they're as happy as anyone else. Well, how can that be? 
I suggest that the reason is because they were able to find meaning in this, that they were able to, it took a while, you know, maybe a year, but they were able to either in a religious sense or perhaps they said to themselves, my life will be short, but I'll give it to the fullest, that, that they, they were able to construct a meaning system around this that enabled them to come to terms with it. Now, if you think about it, if you're in that third group, you can't do that, that even though you might not have the gene, you can't really do the work to find meaning in it yet because you don't know whether, in fact, you have it or not. And indeed, for some reason, the researchers didn't measure this group uh, at this point. But you see that this uncertain group was the same, and they started out at the same level of happiness. But a year later, they were substantially and significantly less happy even than the group that knew they were going to die at a, at a relatively young age. And I suggest the difference between these groups is the ability to find some meaning or, or the ability to come to terms with this, this news. Well, what if you're having trouble finding meaning? And I'll just put in a plug for the research of a friend of mine, James Pennebaker. He actually used to teach here at UVA. And he has developed some very interesting, um, easy-to-do writing exercises for people who have experienced some event, some negative event, they're having trouble uh, constructing meaning about. And um, it turns out to be a pretty powerful way for most people to, to come to terms with a negative event. That's a long URL to copy down, but if you just Google James Pennebaker, you'll get to his webpage, and there are some instructions as to how to do it. Okay, ingredient number three, be optimistic. Well, again, maybe not that surprising, uh, but there is evidence that people who see the glass as half full instead of half empty are ones who are, uh, tend to be healthier and also tend to be happier. Uh, there is power to positive thinking, the research shows. Now, I have to say, some of you may well know about this book, The Secret, which argues that the way to achieve this is to kind of sit in our armchairs and just think positive things, and this great universal law of attraction will bring those things to us. No. <laughs> it's not that simple, unfortunately. What sets optimists apart from pessimists is not what they think, it's what they do. And the research suggests, for example, that optimists, they don't just sit there in their armchairs. They are, they are proactive. They confront problems rather than avoiding them. They're better planners for the future. Uh, they focus on what they can control and change. And this last one is particularly important, that if something, some setback happens, as it does to us all, it's the optimist who says to him or herself, uh, okay, what do I have to do to, to try harder? How can I get over that barrier? Um, what, what path can I take? What can I do next to achieve my goal? It's the pessimist who's more apt to say, oh, this proves I can't do it, and goes back to their room and sulks. And so, um, you know, I wish that I could tell you you could buy the secret and become wealthy and happy, but, but I think a better strategy is to try to see that glass as half full and to try to act in these ways that, that capture the optimist point of view. Um, an interesting question is whether a pessimist can become an optimist, and that we can talk about that in the question period if you want, because I think the research is a little unclear on that, but, but I think adopting this point of view is at least worth trying. Okay, 
Have a sense of purpose. There's uh, Indiana Jones and Lara Croft, the Tomb Raider. These are people who have this great sense of autonomy and self-efficacy, uh, having feeling like we, we're working towards something and we're making progress, we can do it. These are all ingredients to, to happiness. Now, of course, we can't all be Indiana Jones or Lara Croft, but we all can find something that engages us and, and ideally gives us this sense of flow which is a psychological state in which we've all experienced where you're so engaged in something you lose track of time. And, you know, it could be as something as simple as a crossword puzzle, or if you're really lucky, it could be your job, you know, something where you go to work and you're so engaged in it that um, you just lose sight of time and you look forward to doing it. Um, but if, if it's not your job, there's, again, plenty of things that we can do to achieve this state, uh, from our family lives to hobbies to, to what have you is a way of um, achieving this state. Now, just to summarize so far, here's these four ingredients. Uh, the question of, well, how do we get them? And I would suggest that there are actually some mistakes that people make that uh, thwart our, our achievement of those, those ingredients. And for the rest of the talk, I'll tell you a little bit about what those mistakes are and maybe how to avoid them. So this is a shameless plug for my 2002 book in which um, I do talk about some of these, these um, mistakes. And I, there's three um, fairly common mistakes that people make that I will uh, conclude by telling you about. The one, I think, is focusing too much on material things. Second, um, again, this inward focus and in thinking about ourselves rather than an outward focus. And finally, uh, worrying too much about bad things happening. So let's start with the first one. Why wasn't money on that recipe list of the things that make us happy? Well, you know, I do have to qualify this a little bit. It is certainly true that extreme poverty is not a state that, that uh, uh, we want to be in psychologically or in any other way, that it has lots of costs health-wise and, and so on, but it certainly has a psychological cost as well. Um, but the research suggests that as long as we are earning enough money to meet our basic needs, earning more money doesn't make us that much happier. Uh, for example, there's a fair amount of evidence that lottery winners are not happier after winning huge amounts of money. Um, in fact, there's even some evidence they become less happy. So if you take one take home message from today's talk, don't buy lottery tickets. <laughs> And the more materialistic people are valuing things, uh, there's some evidence these people are less happy than others and also less helpful towards others. Uh, just go over this quickly. This is a standard graph that is shown to illustrate this point. What you see here is over the last uh, 60 or so years in the United States, two things. Uh, one is the adjusted gross national product in thousands of dollars. And you can see that as a nation, we've become much wealthier um, over this time period. And here is the mean life satisfaction score that is gathered by survey researchers um, on a yearly basis. And you can see that has remained amazingly stable over this time. If, if, we were, if, if happiness was directly tied to our wealth, we would expect this line to go up as well, but, but it does not. Now, the reason I think this question is a little complicated is I can't just tell you don't aspire to have money. 
Because I do think it depends how we spend it. And perhaps the error is, is that we spend it in the wrong way, such as on material things. And if you think back to that recipe for happiness, we could use our money for those things. So for example, um, we could spend our money in ways that encourage our social relationships, ways that brings family together, ways that furthers our, our interactions. Uh, wealthy people are in a better position to do some of those things, perhaps. Uh, perhaps it can buy us time and uh, more time to engage in those activities that we love to do that, that encourage this flow state. And finally, we can certainly use our money to help other people um, and not just spend it on ourselves. And uh, as I'll show you in a moment, that actually can make us happier. This isn't really just a pitch for the Alumni Association, but you can think of it that way if you, if, if, if you want it. So here's a study that was done by a former student of mine, uh, published in Science. Uh, it was very clever and very simple. Um, suppose that um, as you were leaving today, I gave each of you a $20 bill. Would that make you happy? <laughs> a little bit, maybe. Well, suppose I, I randomly divided you into two groups, and I told half of you that there's a catch. You have to spend that money on somebody else. So take a friend out for coffee or, or, uh, or what, what, donate it to charity. You can't spend it on yourself. The others are told, treat yourself to something, um, in both cases by the end of the day. And then later that day, the researchers got back in touch with people and asked them how they were feeling, how happy they were. And it turned out that there was a fairly strong effect that the people who were happiest are those who were told to spend the money on a friend rather than on themselves. Now, I think there's a couple of reasons for that. Um, helping others, for one thing, it connects us to other people. So back to those recipe ingredients. Um, by, almost by definition, helping people engages us with, with others in ways that can further our happiness. It also can enhance our view of ourselves. That we, we draw lessons about who we are based on what we do. And if we look in the mirror and we see someone who just buys expensive things versus someone who outreaches to others and, and uh, is very helpful in our communities, or to our alumni association, then, um, then we see someone that is, is a more positive person that, that we like to be. Okay, the third um, thing perhaps we sometimes get wrong about this happiness recipe is, um, this, is a little, this one takes a little explaining, but I think we're, we worry too much about the, the, the bad things in our futures. And I think the reason that is that we underestimate our ability to find meaning in things, even if terrible things happen. Back to that genetic testing study, for example. So there's no doubt that if when life deals us the blows that it inevitably does, that these things hurt. I'm certainly not minimizing the pain that we all feel when uh, the bad things in life happen. But maybe not for as long as we think they will. And again, I think that's because how good we are, for most events, at finding meaning in them. Now, um, I've listed things. I haven't given you the citations. But everything on this list has a research study behind it that shows that people recover more quickly from these things than they think they will. I've already shown you one of these, the study on genetic testing. Romantic breakups. You know, many of us think, you know, if my relationship fell apart, 
uh, my life would be over as I know, uh, know it. And again, it would really hurt. I'm not minimizing that at all. But perhaps um, as time goes by, we might bounce back a little quicker than we think by finding some meaning, maybe rationalizing a little bit to explain why this happened. Some health problems, the ones that I think are, some are easier to find meaning in than others, but uh, again, we can talk about that later if you want. There's a study that looked at women at a pregnancy center and uh, they asked them whether they had gotten the results they wanted to get. So these were people who were pregnant but didn't want to be or not pregnant that wanted to be. And in both cases, they were disappointed, but not for as long as they expected they would be. Various kinds of academic and job setbacks, a study that a collaborator and I did a number of years ago showing that professors who don't get tenure, um, that they think um, they're going to, you know, again, their life will end as they know it if they don't get tenure. But you know what? Life goes on, and, and um, after a little while, they're as happy as they were before that, that outcome. A timely one, given that we have an election coming up a week from Tuesday, that uh, I think, and I'm going to be pretty devastated if my candidate doesn't win, but you know, um, maybe not for as long as I think. Now, another time we won. <laughs> um, and in fact, I now get to tell you about a study that some of my students and I did uh, a few years ago having to do with uh, UVA football. But first, let me show you this quote from the novelist Ian McEwen, who I think captures this well. And he talks about how people often remark how quickly the extraordinary becomes commonplace. We are highly adaptive creatures. The predictable becomes, by definition, background. Leaving the attention uncluttered, the better to deal with the random or unexpected. And again, I think this is what we don't anticipate, how resilient we are uh, when things happen. OK, so this study, uh, this, we did this study um, a few years ago. And uh, we asked UVA students, this was those UVA students who told us they really cared about the football team. And they predicted how happy they would be in the days following an important UVA uh, victory or loss. One of the games was against Virginia Tech, another against North Carolina. And the question is, were they right in their predictions about happiness? Well, here are their predictions. And um, now, to explain this, this is actually a different score. It's how happier or unhappier they thought they would be compared to their normal baseline level of happiness, which happened to be measured on a nine-point scale. So the way to read this is that these students predicted that on the Saturday of the game, if UVA won, keep hitting this button, sorry. Um, there we go. Uh, they would be you know, between two and three points happier on this nine-point scale than they normally are. And that's, that's a big difference. Um, they thought, yes, they, you know, that would go down a little bit as the week wore on. But even by Tuesday, they thought they'd be more than a point happier than their normal level of happiness. If UVA lost, you know, it's pretty much the mirror image. They thought that right after the loss, they would be between two and three points less happy on this nine-point scale. Um, that would, sure, they'd recover you know, gradually. But even by Tuesday, they're a little bit under their normal level of happiness. Well, were they right? Um, after um, several games, we contacted people. Um, we only have data for one day, uh, the day after. And as you'll see, there's only one number on this uh, graph because it was the same for those who, when UVA won and when UVA lost. 
they were exactly as happy as they had been before the game started. Now, I think there's a number of reasons for this. I think one, again, is this meaning factor that we, you know, we're, we're incredibly good meaning makers and we start explaining things as soon as they happen. And if UVA won, well, of course they won. You know, they were supposed to win. And or if they lost, uh, well, you know, okay, you know, not a very good team this year. What can I say? Um, but I think another thing that often goes on is we, we forget how much life goes on and other events capture our attention. That uh, we just don't think about these things after a little while as we, as we think we might because, you know, by that Sunday you're thinking about the upcoming week and what's going on in the rest of your life and, and the game just has receded in your memory more than you might think. So, the moral of all this. Oh. Well, for those of you who are going to the game, then the question becomes, well, why are you going to the game if it's not going to uh, have much impact on your happiness? And again, I don't think I'm telling you anything you don't really know here, but it's because it isn't the outcome that really is that important, or at least perhaps not as important as you might think. And again, back to that happiness recipe. I think one reason sporting events are fun to go to is because of those ingredients and not uh, the outcome itself. So for most of us, going to a sporting event, particularly for those of you who are alumni coming from out of town, perhaps reconnecting with friends uh, that you went to UVA with or other friends you've made over the years, it's an opportunity to connect with other people. Perhaps it's a way to help you find meaning in your UVA experience, to come back to grounds, think about the great times you had here, and, and, um, and uh, tell stories to yourself that give it meaning. Maybe it gives you a sense of purpose. And again, I, th I think one thing about sporting events is there's sort of a group purpose. You know, we're all here for the same thing. The band is playing. It gives us this sense of, of common goal that we're, that we're working towards. So at a minimum, I think sporting events capture the first three ingredients, of, three of the four ingredients of happiness. To be honest, with the current UVA football team, I'm not sure about the optimism <laughs> one. But, but uh, we're working on it. We're, we're, we're working on it. So, uh, just to summarize, uh, those of you who are going to the game, don't focus so much on that. Focus on the good times with other people. Thank you very much. I believe uh, we have a question period if anyone wants to ask, and I think you're supposed to come up to the microphone because since this is being recorded, um, that will help us out tremendously. So if you don't mind, uh, or maybe the mic can be passed around. I would wish for infinite number of wishes. <laughs> that one's always rolled out, yeah. Um, so I recently saw a study, and hopefully I can encapsulate this appropriately, that basically said, that if you have quantity over quality of good experiences, so for example, decent $10 bottles of wine versus one $1,000 wine, that the quantity actually contributes more to your happiness than the one super great event. Can you comment on that and how we can utilize that in our lives in the pursuit of happiness? Yeah, that's, that's an interesting one. And, and I guess I would say there's a little bit of debate over it that, um, you know, is it better to have uh, very intense experiences that are perhaps not frequent or a long series of um, uh, 
uh, less intense ones. And I think the research does tend to support what you said, with one perhaps caveat, that uh, lots of more lower level positive things are good, as long as they're not always the same thing. If it's always that same $10 bottle of wine, we're going to adapt to it pretty quickly. And so by the third or fourth time, uh, but if you can think of you know, frequent experiences that are nice, but changing, um, that's a pretty good recipe. And I, I'll give you just one real quick example of that, that people often point to the French as having a lifestyle that um, maybe approaches the happiness recipe better than Americans. And uh, the stereotype, at least, is the French um, spend a lot of time with each other at meals. Um, there's a lot of emphasis on food. Um, and whereas Americans, um, for example, if you go to McDonald's in Paris, the French tend to make an event even out of a McDonald's meal. They're there for an hour, they're talking, they're having fun. Uh, whereas in America, you go to McDonald's often by yourself and spend 10 minutes there. And so having a daily life that connects us with other people, frequent positive things, um, I think is a pretty good recipe, more so than one big $100 bottle of wine. Yes, uh, have there been any studies about uh, possibly other people's misfortunes making you happier? <laughs> and my example would be, uh, I am, a, even if UVA is not playing this team, when Duke loses in basketball, <laughs> I am happy for two or three days. Uh, me too. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, that you know we are uh, a comparative species as well, and and we do. Um, we do like to compare ourselves to, to other people and other things. And for example, back to the money uh, case, that uh, there is a little bit of evidence that if you work in a company where uh, your starting salary is going to be, let's say, $70,000, but everyone else is making $80,000, that job's going to be less attractive to you than one in which you're making $60,000, but everyone else is making $50,000. So it's not the absolute amount, it's knowing that you're better than the other people in, in the company. Um, you know, I think that's a slippery slope and this sort of comparative, uh, there's some researchers who suggest that, you know, if we really get into that mindset too much, it's going to be hard to attain a, a good level of happiness because we're constantly comparing to, to what we had yesterday and, and trying to improve and, and so um, do whatever you can in the sporting example, but, but uh, perhaps uh, just enjoying what we have is, is something to aspire to. I've always sort of taken it as axiomatic that the more options we have, the happier we are. But is that necessarily true? Well, that's an interesting example to bring up because there is some really interesting research complaining that up to a point, it's not, uh, after a certain point, it's, it's actually paralyzing to have too many choices. Uh, there's a researcher named Barry Schwartz at Swarthmore College who has done a lot of research on this. And uh, to give one example, um, if you work at a company where uh, you have the opportunity to choose different retirement funds that you can invest in um, and have your employer match some of it, say, that if you give employees too many options, 
then most people don't do anything because they just get too paralyzed. Like, well, gosh, there's TIA, there's, you know, there's Fidelity, there's all these funds. Uh, I don't know. Um, and actually, limiting the choice sample can make it easier for people to compare and figure out what they want. Same is true with food in some cases. So, um, you know, I, that's an interesting one because there's, I think, in, in, in the United States at least, there's so many choices in so many domains, and life would be a lot easier in some ways if we just narrowed them. Still thinking about your study of the hunting Huntington's disease. That wasn't my study, but yes. <laughs> um, the slide mm -hmm. and the the person who was uncertain started out happier before the study, and so he wasn't really in a different state. He was uncertain before the testing, right? Yes. No. They, they were the same level of happiness as before, but you make it. Well, I see what you're saying. Yes, they were as happy as the others, but they did go down. Yeah, um, they, they yes, were yes, significantly yes. lower yes. a year later. Um, and, and I feel like that's the state most of us are in, a state of uncertainty about our future, whether it's our health or, or whatever. And, and, and I find that troubling because um, do we have to have an answer before we can start creating meaning? I mean, do we have to know, yes, I am going to die of Huntington's or no, I'm not, that disease is not going to be the one mm -hmm. that's going to get mm -hmm. me. No, that's an excellent observation as to because uh, those people were in uncertain before the test. Why did uncertainty after the test uh, lead to a drop. And you know, I can only speculate that, um, at least for those who took the test and got inconclusive results, that, that, is, that they realized they could never know, that somehow they, uh, they thought they were going to find out, and then it turns out that the test was inconclusive for them, that made it even more um, disquieting to, to not know their fate. Um, but you know, you're right that there is a lot of uncertainty in life about um, all sorts of things. And um, you know, I guess back to that ingredient of finding meaning. I think that's what uh, meaning systems are designed to do is to help us with that. So be it religion or some other belief system, uh, if you think about religion, it answers the major questions for us as, as to why things are the way they are and, and what happens to us after we die and, and how we came to be. These are the big questions, and religion tells us, provides answers. If we're not religious, you know, we have to do what we can to find some meaning in other ways, maybe through cats. But, 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 it, it, uh, uh, but I do think uncertainty is about negative things is not a great state to be in. Percentage, what percentage of our happiness do we have control over? You mentioned the genetic set point and then things we don't have control over. What, is there a percentage break? Well, good question. And there are researchers who attach a number to it, uh, but I'm not that fond of doing so because I think it really depends. So there are some researchers who say that I, I think they say it's, I don't know, I forget, 30 or 40 percent, something like that. But I think it really depends on that second one, our life circumstances, and whether we have, in a way, the luxury to to try to change our lives. So if we live in Zimbabwe uh, or in, a, um, in an environment where um, things are so bad that um, there's not much we can do to, to change things, it might be zero or, or you know, very low. But if we live in, you know, as, as middle class uh, citizens in the United States in the year 2010, um, again, it depends on our, our situation. But but most of us, it's, it's a bigger piece of the pie just because we have the luxury of, 
of being able to support ourselves and not having to worry about poverty and, and so on, at least for ourselves. Uh, so then um, it's a bigger piece. How big? Well, you know, the estimates of genetic influence, 40%, somewhere in that ballpark. So that leaves, you know, 60% to see how much you can control. How did you actually gather your data on your uh, tests where you beeped the people during the day? And was there a correlation between the number of times you beeped them and the more negative the responses were? Ah, interesting. Uh, again, that actually wasn't my study. That was some other researchers. But, um, you know, this is a fairly commonly used technique. And, and um, you know, these are people who agree to be in the study, and you explain it to them. And I think there's usually rules that, you know, if it beeps at a time when it's just inconvenient for you, you're at work or you're in the bathroom or something, you know, then, then, uh, then you don't have to answer. So um, I don't think there's that correlation between number of times and happiness. But, um, you know, usually you're just being asked a few questions, so it beeps, and you get kind of used to, to answering them. I understand that the nation of Bhutan in the Himalayas has begun to measure gross national happiness. Are you familiar with how they do that? And have you any comments as to whether a country could measure gross national happiness? Well, uh, I am somewhat familiar with those efforts. And they're being spearheaded in part by Daniel Kahneman, who is a psychologist, but actually won the Nobel Prize in economics. Um, uh, a few years ago, and he and some other economists feel that uh, in order to measure how we're doing as a nation, that it's not enough just to have things like gross national product and economic indices, that we ought to have some measure of overall well-being. And uh, Kahneman and others have come up with ways of doing that. I think he had something to do with the, with the baton uh, measures, if I recall correctly. And um, I do think it's possible. I mean, there have been lots of national surveys of life satisfaction for years conducted by the University of Michigan and, and others. Um, so, you know, and, and given that happiness isn't a one-to-one -one relationship to economic measures, it tells you something that those measures don't. So, yeah, I think that's, that's a good idea. One more? Okay, I'm told that we have time for one more. You said that you could speak about uh, ways to help pessimists become optimists. Yes. Um, there's a little research on that. And there are, um, there's one researcher who did a uh, writing exercise where she asked her participants to uh, write three nights in a row after, before they went to bed about their best possible self in the future. And so imagine yourself, say, 10 years from now, and the person you really think that you want to become and can become, and particularly to focus on how to get there, not just think of the end state, but to write about um, what you can do between now and then to, to become that person. And just that little exercise, uh, done three or four nights in a row, uh, she contacted her participants who did this um, a few months later. They were healthier. Um, had fewer visits to the doctor, and they were a little more optimistic. Um, so sometimes, you know, I know that sounds simple, but um, just having a plan and thinking about it and, and focusing on the things you can do rather than all the barriers preventing you from getting there can, uh, can be useful. Now, that was one or two studies. So 
Um, you know, I'm not sure there's, a, there's not a huge amount of research on this, but, but I found that encouraging. Okay, thank you. <laughs> oh, yes. Um, I, am told, I am told that uh, I was supposed to think of a trivia question for you so that you can win a prize. Is that great? Okay, and the prize is this wonderful UVA 550-piece puzzle. Um, now, I'll start out with a hard question, because uh, most of you aren't old enough to know the answer to this, I don't think. But um, there was a professor in the UVA psychology department who was both a professor and coach of the wrestling team. And if you can tell me his name. Uh, you again? Oh, there you go. Okay. <laughs> Thank you very much. Enjoy the game.